It's always a good time when we have Xavier Bickett in the house. I, You know, there's something about you, Xavier, that prompts me towards negligence when it comes to this show. Like, I, I prep less when I know you're coming because I know I won't have to because you just you bring things to the table. And you have a way of just, like, irritating me in the right way. Like, the that's provocative, that draws out good conversations. And I frequently rerun our conversations when I'm not in here live because I enjoy them so much and uh, I hope other people do as well. But you're not the actual star tonight. No, it's you're not about here, me. You're here, but it's not about you tonight. It's not about me. I want to introduce someone and for your listeners. And I want you to challenge her and put her to the test and, and see if that she's as good as I think she is. So here's my first question. Did he tell you that before you, and we're talking to Kirsten Johnson. Kirsten Johnson, who's a candidate for House in 50B? A. A. I, I had a 50-50 shot. Yeah. yeah. So close. 50A, which is Richville, Bloomington. Yes, it is. Endorsed Republican candidate, correct? Absolutely. And did you, were you aware of the fact that when Xavier arranged this, he told me that I could ask you anything and then I was supposed to put you on the rack and really torture you with he questions? did. Yeah. He's warned me of it multiple times, okay. including <laughs> in the car ride on the way here, in the lobby. So how dare you, ma'am? How dare you? Who do you think you are? I'm up for it. I'm just yeah, naive, optimistic. I don't know. I'm new to this, so I don't know how scared to be yet. It's great. <laughs> Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We're streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. You can catch us 9 to 11 weeknights. Do a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app to catch up with past shows. 651-989-5855 to join the conversation this evening. I think we'll have a thing or two to say that might uh, provoke your comment. Brad Oman takes those calls and produces the show. So I'll, I'll get to the the questions about you know your bio and the why you're running and all that that jazz later but i want to start off with something that i noticed that caught my eye on your campaign website which by the way is kirstenforhouse.com correct yes kirsten number four house.com very good uh correction there got to make sure you get the number four in there kirstenforhouse.com one of the things you talk about both in your your announcement video and on the site itself is this notion of being nice, how you're trying to run a nice campaign. And you you note that when you tell people that you're a Republican, their response is, but you're so nice. Every time. Yeah. Now, this this concerns me. <laughs> <laughs> As it should. What, right? Why is it? Because I, I think there's, I, and I don't want to get ahead of your answer, but it occurs to me that this is not the way it ought to be. And I'm interested in your thoughts on wh- why it that perception is out there that to be a Republican is to be mean, I guess. And then also what you're doing in your campaign to try to counter that and present a, a different face. I think part of it has been, um, you know, in the 2016 election, we all know that it got very contentious and dark and mean. But for some reason, the left gets the narrative and does better of advertising themselves as the party of empathy and the party of kindness and caring for people while the right are all the villain villains and money grabbing and angry Twitters and things like that. So when you come across the people as just with smart points and with kindness and empathy and saying, I'm here to help too. And yeah, I don't want more school shootings, but I do want less gun legislation. They're shocked to hear that those can be, in the same thing right so people who know me personally and know that i don't want more school shootings are surprised then to hear a rational argument against them while using republican logic yeah it is difficult to combat the media driven narratives that are out there regarding what it is that we believe what it is that republicans believe what it is that conservatives believe and and also just the our character and nature because that's really what you're speaking to when you talk about trying to put a, a nice face on a republican candidacy is it's about who, what kind of a person you are. 
and what kind of people Republicans are. And, you know, we, for us, this is not a major revelation because we are all have all worked to some degree or another within the party right. and therefore know that the people that we work alongside are not villains. They're not evil people who hate others on account of their skin or whatever the case may be or, or, or get up angry every day looking for a way to ruin somebody's life. And yet that's the narrative that's put out there. And the image that people have in their heads when they think of Republicans, and it gets reinforced on social media, unfortunately. So what kind of response have you gotten, you know, once you have that initial moment of, oh, wow, you're a Republican. That's, I didn't expect that coming from you. Where did things go from there when you're talking to folks out on the campaign trail? Um, It's usually just more of the, you know, why are you Republican then? You're a girl, you're a millennial, you're young, you should be a Democrat. And so they give me all the reasons of why I should be an Oh, aren't they the party that really respects you? Why would you be a Republican? So that's when I get into, again, the nice people. The reason I'm here is because the Republicans I know are all very kind and smart. And again, it's getting past that narrative and telling them about that. So, yeah, the message of nice and kindness is more to the left and to the independents who I also have enough friends who were so burnt out in 2016. They want nothing to do with politics. So when you come at them with a nice approach, they can be welcome back in and willing to talk again because they... No, you're not going to attack them. Another thing that stands out on your campaign website is your focus on liberty, and you use that word, which I have to imagine if there was some, if you were getting a paid political consultant to advise you, they would probably advise against you using the word liberty because it comes with all these connotations that can be uh, negative when they're heard in the wrong context. Why why liberty? Why is that your focus? Why is that your the, the choice to put an, uh, as a label on your campaign? It's because a lot of the ideas that have been shaping me for the last couple of years are liberty ideas. And I'm going to be forward and honest about that because, again, they've been articulated to me through things like the Republican Liberty Caucus with Xavier, through a lot of libertarian candidates and libertarian activists who've really made me think about why I believe the things I do. So when people want to ask me about why i would use a strong word it's because i can strongly back it up and i can explain why so and i'm super excited to too do you perceive a link between these two things between the niceness and the focus on liberty do they go together or is are the is there some sort of tension between those two things i think there is a tension and i think they're not usually paired together which is why it kind of creates a dynamic of this oh but they can be and Tell me more. And how does that work? Which is the kind of conversation that I want to start with people on all sides and really dig into. One of the things you mentioned on that you're interested in uh, pledging to do once elected is removing three regulations for everyone created. Now, this is kind of a a a raise on the bet that's been thrown down uh, in recent years of eliminating two on the national level. There's been a lot of talk of eliminating two for everyone. You're making it three for everyone. Yep. Now, here's your hardball question for you. Ooh. Is that arbitrary? Like, do, are you going to find yourself in a position where you have to eliminate regulations that actually make sense just in order to make the 3-1 ratio? Or is, is this just a, kind of a, a general concept or a guideline that you're throwing up? It's more a guideline and it's more a focus of work. So if I'm in, you know, I'm in the house and working on things and people want to work with me on creating a bill. Great. Let's work on that and create it. Now that that's done or now that, you know, I've done my part of it, let's go look around at, you know, what are people calling for that could be reduced or what are people calling for? Let's focus on that one and let's reach out to people for that one and kind of shift where we're putting our efforts two or three times more than we are to the one thing that we created. So in my observation, politics is something that, you know, it's kind of like hydrodynamics where the water follows the path of least resistance. When it comes to legislative action, you know, and we see this play out in the media cycle, politicians and their their proposals and legislative action follows the news cycle, and it follows the impulses of the the public and the people. You know, if they, when we have you brought up guns earlier, when we have an incident like a Parkland shooting, it creates the atmosphere in which legislative proposals are made and move forward. When you talk about reducing regulation. Who's the constituency for that? Where, where are you going to summon the political will to actually get votes behind a bill that's going to take away something that somebody lobbied very hard to have installed in the first place? I think it's going to be um, 
you know, like one of the low hanging fruit for that is occupational licensing. So there's all sorts of restrictions that the state manages to force you into what I consider in some industries arbitrary requirements to be able to do a job. So you take you can find feel good stories anywhere of a wonderful hairdresser who, you know, she's been doing hair since high school and she's a wonderful person. She could create a great business for herself. But now she has to go to school for two years. Now she has to pay thousands of dollars for a license and pull her up and say, this is a girl who should be able to start her own company at 18. And in the free market, if she's terrible, it fails and she does something else. If she's great, she keeps going. But there's no reason to create this barrier for thousands of dollars for no reason. So I think we can find those feel-good stories. And once we start getting that message out or you find one that does that, so you say hairdressing, then you go to therapeutic massage, then you go to you know anything else where it's an industry that has been repressed by arbitrary legislation and start finding the stories, making them the news cycle, and then pushing for them. Yeah, the, and pushing is the operative word because you're going to be pushing against something, and that's the, the inertia of the status quo. And more than that, you, you also get resistance from the, the forces that wanted the status quo to be implemented in the first place. And so, you know, the, what I'm hearing and I'm encouraged by is a desire to create narratives rather than to be proactive rather than to respond you know, because, you know, when we talk about the, the news cycle driving legislation and driving pr- proposals, that's a reactive, responsive, opportunistic approach to governing as opposed to putting se- planting seeds of narrative that you're going to try to cultivate into the environment where you can move forward on a, on a legislative proposal. Um, we saw an example of that we talked about last night with the left when it comes to education. There's this uh, group of kids in Michigan who's suing the state of Michigan in federal court because they can't read <laughs> on the basis of, and and the, the point of the suit is to try to create this precedent and this narrative that literacy is a basic human right, much like they talk about in, in the form of healthcare. And uh, that's, that's a scenario where those folks are engaged in a proactive effort to try to create a narrative, create in an, an environment in which they can pursue their policy goals. There's not enough of that on the right. It sounds like you're try you're you're thinking along those lines of trying to be proactive and go after and actually create the scenarios where you can move forward on issues and legislation. Yep, and I have been doing that in platforms that I have. Um, you know, I live in Richfield, so then I administered the Richfield Community page, which is just you know not government run or any kind of you know very little censorship and things like that. So I would, again, bluntly say something or very directly or give an extreme example. And it made real changes on the back end where people, legislators listen and the local paper runs a story about it. And we actually have things that happen because I say something, again, and not creating the story, but amplifying the story, hearing it from other people and being willing to be the one to stand up and share it and be shouted down or be, yeah, but and blah, blah, blah. So I'm not afraid to do it. And I've kind of honed in how to do it just over the last couple of years. And I built calluses against it because it's not fun being, you know, opposed by, right. you know, friends and neighbors and everything. But when it's for a good cause and when you're, you are really driving at your heart to change something for the better, you dig in and you do it. And that's what I'm getting used to. And that's what I think I can do at a bigger level now. All right. We started with the high level conceptual stuff. That's what I like. That's where I like to keep my focus. <laughs> when we come back, let's find out, who Kirsten Johnson is and why she's running for Minnesota House in District 50A. See, I even have it wrong here on my notes. <laughs> Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, Twin Cities News Talk.com. You found one, Brad. Yeah, this is a Xavier special. Well, I'm we got because Xavier's from the hood. No, I'm not. I'm from Bloomington. <laughs> He's prestigious West Bloomington. I'm from the hood. Oh, okay. East Bloomington. Okay. Come on. I'm south. I'm South Central Bloomington. Please. Right. 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 <laughs> Good job. But now Brad. it's one Bloomington. Oh, yeah, we're one Bloomington. So that's right. going away. I'm on the one Bloomington committee. Right. Yeah. Trying to. So what divides? It's the it's ninety or thirty five W. Right. They, that divides it East. Is like a physical barrier. Yeah. You know. 
back but in is, my day. But is there much clients. of a cultural bear- difference between the two sides? What, well, what distinguishes east from west other than being on either side of the freeway? There really isn't. Well, there you go. What a good representative of one Bloomington. <laughs> that was your stock answer, right? Your talking point. There is no difference. I mean, one has Kennedy and one has Jefferson. Like two, high, You have different high school names, but right. really there isn't that much of a difference. All right. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson. Twin Cities New Sock, AM 1130-1035 FM. We have Kirsten Johnson, candidate for Minnesota House from District 50A, which includes Bloomington and Richfield. And we also, of course, have Xavier Bigot in studio with us as well. Now, the reason you're here, I don't know that we established that up front, is because you are the chair of the Senate District 50 BPOU. Is that correct? That is correct. I am the co-chair because Kirsten, who I recruited a while ago to be my co-chair for the A side, uh-huh. of, and now she's leaving me to run for office again. So I'm, I'm left with my lonely self. Um, but, yeah, so I chair Senate District 50, which is, you know, central East Bloomington and southwest of Richfield. And so... You know, being very selfish of caring about my own backyard, I wanted to, you know, bring Kirsten to, to your listeners and have you test her. Um, I think she's a great candidate. I think she would represent us very well. And so I had to come her, show her off, and brag about her. What's what's that district like, 50A, you know, Richfield, Bloomington? Is it a, a purple district? Is it lean red? Is it lean blue? What's it, what, what are you up against? It's blue. Okay. It's pretty blue. And both of our city councils have uh, been basically the left does a better job of really planning the long game. So mm-hmm. they have a list of candidates stacked for every team. level. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So they know what they're doing. We're scrapping at the last minute some seasons of just, you know, it's tough to find people who can drop your job, drop everything and run for office like this. Mm-hmm. So with their lists, you know, in Richfield, they've stacked the city council in Bloomington. It's getting more so um and they just have candidates for miles that they can run that are have the money to back them and have the everyone in their corner and we don't so we're the underdogs most of the time but i think uh kirsten has a very good shot of winning um this particular seat right now linda slocum was the representative who had been there forever and so she just recently retired um, so it's an open seat right um and linda slocum was was the candidate that put together a lot of the more gun control type legislation um and you know there was people that are upset about that in that district and she, she resigned for other reasons you know um, but i think this is a great opportunity for a new fresh voice to represent that district and i think kirsten is a perfect person for that so, Kirsten, you've already talked to us a little bit about the style of campaign that you're running and the the general ideological bent, which, in a word, is liberty, that you're trying to bring to uh, the state legislature. Tell us a little bit about you, about Kirsten Johnson, what's your background, your bio, what brings you to this point where you are willing to throw your hat in the ring to be a representative? So a lot of it is uh, representation in the House of Representatives. When you actually pay attention And it is more of a left narrative to take the identity politics, but in a true House of Representatives, it should have people of all income levels, ages, backgrounds, things like that. We don't have, you know, for example, I'm a single mom. Across the country, only 1% of legislators are single moms. And I guarantee you it's a higher percentage across the country who actually are. And the Native American representation was another big push of we just got enough Native American legislators to have a caucus in Minnesota but all of them are Democrats, so they're not getting anything pushed through in a Republican Congress. Mm. So, again, to come with those issues and have the unique perspective to offer something and to work on those things that are actually valuable and right. useful. Uh, same thing, you know, this is the year of women running. And so, you know, unless you're a Republican woman, I hear from all my Democrat yeah, friends. That's right, so, that's right. Yeah. right, they all want to cheer for you until you're uh, Team Red. So. Yeah, you got to think the right thoughts and be a woman. Right. It's, it's yeah. not the one before the other. Exactly. But I, I have to say something because in the beginning you were talking about to her about how, oh, you, you're running, you're being a nice and uh, running a nice campaign, and you were always talking to me about being the ray of sunshine and this nice, polite, you know, positive person, and and so you're over here, you know, trying to jab at Kirsten for that. I, I'm offended <laughs> by that. You know, people can be nice and still believe in liberty and still. Um, have good conversations with people and so you you know i don't really well like i'll that. tell you i'll tell you what i was trying to provoke there i'll tell you what i, was well, I know what you were trying to provoke. no i don't think you do i don't think you do when when i saw on your campaign website kirsten the number four house.com 
Kirsten Johnson running for house in District 50A, Richfield, Bloomington. When I saw that focus on niceness and being nice and being a nice person and talking about how when you get in front of people and tell them you're a Republican or they discover that you're a Republican, that they're shocked because you're so nice. I think that seeming tension, that seeming um, conflict between niceness and Republicanism, niceness and conservatism is a complete lie. Like it, it ought to go together like peanut butter and jelly. Of course you're nice when you're a Republican. Of course you're nice when you're conservative. You know why? Because of the second focus of your campaign, which is liberty. Exactly. You, the, the idea being that we're going to leave you alone, right? Yep. Like what's nicer than, hey, you get to be free. Do whatever you want. Yep. I'm not trying to control you. Exactly. Right. That's and really so, nice. <laughs> and so, you know, and that's and that's why I think, Xavier, you you're a perfect fit for the uh, position you hold in the Republican Liberty Caucus as that ray of sunshine, because that really is what liberty has to offer in terms of its practical effect on people's lives is peace and prosperity and genuine community and relationship. And, and in terms of how you are engaging um, with folks in this with this campaign and and what brought you to the table how have you seen that dynamic play out both in dealing with and in trying to pursue the endorsement process and in talking to people on the ground i think it's been um busy the biggest things i get are people who you know don't think i have enough time so again you know i'm early in my career and i'm i have two kids and right. full-time everything so the bigger conversations are about, you know, how can you do this? Because every candidate that we've had is retired or correct self-employed or stay-at-home mom. Right. So it's a lot more conversations about, I'm at the same place as you are. Again, I'm representing the people that you know. Right. So really utilizing that and then also applying it to liberty. Of, I want people to back out of my life just like you want them out of yours. Right. So using that and making a conversation started that we're on the same page. I'm not above you. I'm not richer than you. I'm not anything. And that's been really great for just relating to people mm -hmm. yeah when we come back i want to dive into that a little bit more about the the barriers to access when it comes to the corridors of power over there in st paul we're talking with kirsten johnson candidate for minnesota house she's running in richfield bloomington district 50a also have xavier bickett chair of the republican liberty caucus in with us my name is walter Hudson. closing argument twin cities news talk am 1130 1035 fm twin cities Weekend. Tell me what you really like. Maybe I can take my time. We don't ever have to Kirsten's fight. Kirsten's joining too. Just oh, take yeah. it step by step. I can see it in your By the way, this is Twin Cities News Talk, in case you were wondering. <laughs> this is a conservative talk. I know. Station. Yeah, I know. There's... There's a number of people in their car right now who are like just wiggling the dial to <laughs> make sure. Yeah, right. WB. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're in studio with Kirsten Johnson, who's running for Minnesota House in District 50A, which is Richfield, Bloomington. And we've been talking about her candidacy and her background and what she's trying to bring to the way things are done in St. Paul. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. We also have Xavier Bickett in with us. He's the chair of the Republican Liberty Caucus and also the chair of Senate District 50 Republicans, which is explains why you're in the room right now, along with one of your candidates. That's right. So, Kirsten, I wanted to pick up where we left off in terms of this topic of barriers of access to public service opportunities. You're a single mom. You're young. You're just starting in life. You have young kids. You're going to be, you're, you're asking for the opportunity to serve as a state legislator, which is something that, as you point out, is typically something that's pursued by people who are retired or who are independently wealthy or who are uh, stay-at-home moms or and otherwise are set up to be able to take on the burden uh, without it being an impediment to their ability to provide. Yet you're doing this anyway. So when this comes up, you know, when you're talking to people on the campaign trail and they look at you with a raised eyebrow and say, how are you going to do this? What's your answer to that question? Part of it is uh, that I can. I've lived my whole life 
busy. I enjoy busy. I like managing multi things at once. Uh, so I think I can spearhead this. And that was a big point that actually my aunt made in a conversation of really, you can make the change in this of bring those costs down and bring the accessibility out, open the door so more people can follow you. And I was talking to Karen Housley about that last night where I said, you know, she inspired me to run too, because she is busy and has a lot going on. She said she was inspired by Sarah Palin, who was a governor despite having kids and a lot going on. Right. So it's kind of this, we can keep this wave up of really setting up a stage where it is easier to run. You don't have to raise $60,000. You don't have to dedicate 80 hours a week to campaign just to be competitive. So I am utilizing things like social media or things that I can do at night, things I can do in my free time that don't interfere with my job or my kids or something else. So just kind of making it work has been my plan. Has has this circumstance that you find yourself in prompted any thought as to potential reforms in order to make the legislative uh, service experience more accessible to a broader range of people? You know, are you finding yourself as you go through your own experience of running for office thinking, why is this like this? Why does why does it require this in order to make this step in order to be able to, you know, how could we streamline it? Have any of those thoughts kind of crossed through your mind at all? Absolutely. And they kind of come up as I go. So even just some of the paperwork is there's a ton of legalese on this stuff where, again, if you're not a lawyer, or you don't have a best friend. You know, I lucked out that my lawyer friend agreed to be my treasurer. So right. he's reading through it for me. But again, this wouldn't come easy to me. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not someone who's in that world. And so to not have much guidance there and to not put it in plain English is already a barrier to really intimidate people and to keep them out and keep a certain level of, you know, not even academic, but just a certain sector of the world that doesn't speak this legal language away from doing anything. You've talked a lot about the importance of representation and, you know, you cite the the number of uh, demographic categories that you fall under, um, you know, being a single mother, being a millennial, um, being a woman, being of, of uh, Native American heritage uh, and uh, a veteran, um, a number of check boxes that, have, that can be marked in terms of uh, representation in the legislative body. How has that unique cross-section of perspectives informed your views on issues? I think it does give, because you can tell stories all day. And again, this is what we've seen, you know, older white men who represent us tell the story of, you know, poor Kirsten, the single mom who's working hard for her family, but poor Kirsten's not getting a voice for herself. So now I'm going to be out there saying, here's what's tough and here's what's hard and here's what held me back from trying to do what I wanted to do. And it was legislation and it was this legislation and it was that that really kind of kept me down and how I overcame it and how I actually did with it. So having that personal story and having something to really stand behind and not point to somebody, some abstract face in the crowd, I think can just speak volumes to people again in relatability and in authenticity. So let's talk about one of those issues. And, and being a, a young mother, uh, education comes to mind as something that you no doubt have experience with and uh, aspirations for and would like to see improved in one way or another. What are your thoughts on the, the status quo of education in Minnesota? Uh, my personal thoughts are all over the place. Uh, well, mostly it's school choice and abolish the Department of Education. And this is formed not just in being a parent with two kids who are in the public education system, but also from my time working with the Bureau of Indian Education, which is under the Department of Interior, ironically, not under education at all. And seeing that schools are begging for autonomy and they're saying, stop putting all these restrictions on us. Please just help us with what we're asking for without asking for all the red tape. So yeah, there's a school up north, Bugnagishig School, that was begging for money from D.C., and they have literal holes in the roofs of their, you know, on the ceilings, kids learning in trailers, mm-hmm. and it took 10 years for Washington to approve ceiling patches. I mean, it's insane. So again, just, we know what we need. We know you have the money. We just need access to it, and it's all the barriers in the way. So when it's at the school level, that happens. When it's at the parent level, so again, I would love to put my kids in, better charter schools or private schools because they don't always agree with the public school system. And, right. and, you know, they have struggled in some areas where I think they would do better somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But again, it's the affordability and it's the accessibility. I can't drive them every day. I can't, you know, get the tuition. I can't 
whatever it is, if there was more school choice and if the dollar tag that was tied to each of my kids came to me instead of coming to the public school, I would have options that fit my kids instead of options that fit the school district. Right. Yeah. Very, very well put. Uh, When it comes to uh, a topic like gun rights, you know, this is something that uh, is a a perennial issue. And now that we've had this recent nomination to the Supreme Court, it's front and center again. We're going to be talking about that later in the program tonight. Uh, the the anticipated consequences to Second Amendment rights with the uh, presumed confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. What are your thoughts on the status quo of uh, the ability of gun owners to keep and wield arms in Minnesota? I'm very pro-Second Amendment. And again, at the same time, very anti-school shootings and anti terrorist shootings, you know, you can be two things. But the reason for my pro-Second Amendment is, again, in my unique representation of being Native American and knowing the stories of Wounded Knee and our tribes where the government came in and they said, give us your weapons, we can take care of you from the other tribes or from the other settlers who are going to try to get you, we'll take care of you, but you don't need these weapons, we have better ones. So we turned them in and we trusted them and they turned around and shot us in the backs. So this isn't something that the U.S. government has never done. And it's not something, you know, it's something that we don't hear about enough. And it's something that Native Americans know all about. We know all the stories and we know all the things that happened. And some of those people are still alive that experienced it or had the grandma who died or had, you know, close relatives. So again, offering that up as a, it's not about, I want to hand out guns to everybody. It's about, there is a reason that the Second Amendment is in place and there is a reason that it should stay there. And why it's still relevant today, and it's been relevant in the last fifty or hundred years. Yeah, I love that that approach of appealing to people's huh, as and the, again, this is a leftist phrase, but this one has the virtue of being accurate. Lived experience, right? <laughs> like yeah. the thing, the things that people have actually dealt with, and the history that they know about themselves personally or their own their heritage, their background that speaks to a unassailable truth and there's there's no doubt that when the government comes asking for your guns it's because they have an ulterior motive it's because they have nefarious intentions you cannot point to the episode where the states knocked on a door and said give me your weapons and it's because you know they were going to come show up the next day with uh with cake right like because <laughs> they're going to show up the next day with I'd be in for uh, that though right you know I what i'm saying think about it it's never been for good it's never been because they wanted to do something good for you it's always been because they wanted to take something from you or to destroy you which you know neither of those things is particularly enjoyable let's uh talk with kirsten johnson when we return i also want to get here from xavier about you know why he chose to recruit kirsten for this particular race Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. I'm just sitting in the studio. <laughs> oh, this is so old school. I love this song. <sighs> Once again, as a, as a service to our listeners, I have to clarify, yes, this is Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130. 103.5 FM. That's Schoolboy Q. <laughs> Thanks, Closing Brad. argument. My name's Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855. We have Kirsten Johnson in studio. She's running for Minnesota House in District 50A, which is Richfield and Bloomington. We also have Xavier Bickett in studio, chair of the Republican Liberty Caucus, and also chair of the Senate District 50 Republicans. You recu- recruited Kirsten oh, yeah. for this for this Hardcore. run. So yeah. this started back, actually, I was chair of the YRs at the time. And so we were doing uh, the debate watch parties kind of early 2016. And here she comes and she's, you know, sitting at the table. I was like, oh, you know, you should, you know, get involved in Young Republicans. <clears throat> Tell me a little bit more about you. And she was telling me about herself and you know, she started talking about Rand a little bit, and I'm like, oh, well, I'm also Rand, Rand Paul's regional director for his presidential campaign, or well, at the time, state director. And we started talking about liberty issues. She started coming to more events. <clears throat> she told me a little bit more about her background. And, you know, you can't just recruit anyone to run for office, especially, you know, I chaired Senate District 50 at the time, so I was also trying to steal her to get more involved on that level. Um, and, you know, she started getting more involved. I really liked her. I liked her thought process of how she came to solutions for problems. 
um, her, you know, her her questioning of well, why does government have to try and solve this problem? What can we do as a society or as a people to try and solve this problem instead of of, of government doing or, or there's a barrier that government's doing that actually is is pushing people down instead of allowing them to be free, free and prosper. Um, so I recruited her to run, and then it was at 2016, I think it was. Uh, she, I recruited her to run for state senate um, at the time, and uh, I didn't have a candidate. You it know, was with a two-hour notice. Two-hour notice. You recruited me, and I ran. <laughs> yes, you did, and you know, and you, uh, you didn't even know, but your work actually didn't allow you to campaign. True. And you had to actually stop campaigning, and she still got 42 percent in that district, the most any Republican had gotten running for state senate. Um, and she wasn't even campaigning, and that was in 2016, in, in the era of Trump. And it was just, it was really, you know, she, you know, and I, I wanted, I recruited her again to run again. It's like, you know, Zara, I just don't know if this is gonna work with my family and my my work and my school. And I kept harassing her and um, very politely, you know, ray of sunshine harassing. <laughs> and um, she, she said she was willing to step up to the plate. So I'm really, really excited about it. Um, so you know, she's been involved in the Minnesota Young Republicans and involved in the Republican Liberty Caucus as well. And um, I think she represents a good, um, uh, good Republican values, and will, and will make a great candidate and a good legislator. So, in in the last couple of minutes that we have with you here tonight, Kirsten, uh, kind of give your elevator pitch as to what it is that you're trying to bring to the constituents there in Richfield and Bloomington, and what how you hope to represent them down in St. Paul at the state legislature. Yeah, my elevator pitch is, again, just representation of real people and putting them back in office and representing the people, not only who I am, but the people that I know and live with. I grew up in Bloomington. I've been in Richfield for 10 years. I'm super involved in both communities and really listening to people. I think that's gone away a lot. But again, listening to the areas where government has impeded on their life and helping them to get government out of the way and start helping them be prosperous and on their own. Kirsten, the number four house.com is the website. People can go check that out. You know, again, the, the themes that I find myself drawn to are, you know, you talk about being, being nice, which <laughs> you, you would think that that's not something you have to declare, but we, we live in a narrative context where as a Republican you do, and that seems to be the, the odd uh, juxtaposition. But then coupling it with your focus on liberty, and those two things really do go hand in hand because the liberty is the nice ideology. I think what, so. Too. And, you know what I'm saying? What's nicer than you get to be you, and exactly. we're not going to stop you, and you get to be you know, in relationship with who you want on terms that you both agree to, to your perceived mutual benefit, and to enjoy the fruits of your labor and your trade, and and to to pursue your definition of happiness without restraint that sounds awfully nice to me that's what i think and you know for her campaign that you know it's 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 a it's a gentleman that you're running against i think and you're not going to have the the democrat talking points about how republicans are anti-women you know and they're anti-family and here you have a single mom female who has a nice face who can still articulate why government doesn't need to be there all the time and it's, it is a nice face to the liberty like you were talking about we had this i don't know how much time we have we had this local community outreach event at a local library yeah, tell us about that and i it was it was the, uh put on by hennepin county library in richfield and uh the the program lead of the library reached out to me and said hey we're trying to have a workshop for republicans and democrats coming together but it has to be even it has to be like six and six or seven and seven republicans and seven democrats and so i, I called kirsten because she's running in Bridgefield. I, I had called abdi regay mohammed who's a muslim republican i called robert yang who's um um a christian Hmong who's part of the asian american affiliates i called noah mccourt a black autistic um gay republican um and and uh, we were all there, and then you look around the room, and all the Democrats were like old white people. Right. <laughs> and right. you look at the Republicans, and you had just this great um, mix of values and backgrounds of what Democrats like to call identity politics, but we all believed in limited government and conservative values. And you could just see their faces when we did this uh, fishbowl exercise where it's like all the Republicans sat in the middle of the room, and all the Democrats sat around them, and they were like, you know, Abdi, who's a Somali Republican, why are you a Republican? And he's talking about Republican values and how um, he doesn't need government to lift himself up by the bootstraps and how he's such a, a staunch Trump supporter. And their faces just melted. And it was it was it was it was amazing to show who Republicans are and what values represent. And Kirsten also did a great job talking about, 
you know, I don't want government taking all the taxes and they're not providing the services that I can spend my money better. It was just, it was amazing. Yeah, it's, I had a little mini epiphany listening to you talk about that, about how identity politics, which is something that as conservatives we tend to shy away from, is something that we need to embrace and redefine as your, your identity, the yes. identity of the individual. And also, from getting back to the nice thing, it's not nice to tell me what my identity means. It's not nice to tell me what I ought to think based upon who I am. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Let's go to Anthony in Minneapolis. Thanks for holding. Hey, hey guys. Thanks for taking my call. Yep. Yeah, I was just talking about the voter identity thing and whatnot and the assumption that the Democrats make that any person has color or anything like that should vote Democrat, you know, and I'm a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white guy, you know, born and raised in North Minneapolis, product of Minneapolis public schools, I have an international family. My son, Anthony Jr., quick story, when we went to kindergarten to enroll him, I checked off white in the box, and the lady at the Minneapolis uh, enrollment down there on Broadway looked at me and said, look, um, if you had to look at your son and identify him, how would you? And I said, well, mix. She said, well, if you didn't know him, how would you describe him? I said, I guess African-American likes him. She said, okay, well, we need you to check African-American on the box. Other for white. And if you look at our family, we're a Catholic, libertarian family, no birth control, four kids, Catholic family planning. If you looked at us, we would look like the poster child for your liberal Right, you know, organization, right. and we're not. We're yeah. not. We're we're free thinkers, and I think I see this a lot in my community. A lot of people, it, when you're constantly told to do something, at some right. point in time, you're going to kind of be like, you know what? Why? Right. You know, and I think <laughs> in the inner city community, especially where is, there is a little bit more sense of pushback, yeah, we're a little quicker to question right. quote unquote authority, yeah, and I'm seeing a lot more in my community. Uh-huh. And I say in my community, because I live here. That's right. Come see me. That's <laughs> right. And it, it, this is, I, I see it. We're, you know, we're sick and tired of being told what we should do and how we should do it. And there's no change. There's no outcome. So I see a lot more people. I'm at barbecues hanging out for the rest. I don't hear anybody bashing Trump. Right. A lot of people are happy. I got quite a few friends that got now union jobs, window glazing jobs, concrete jobs, making 24 or 25 bucks an hour. They had prior misdemeanors that four years ago they could never get a job with. Right, and but the demand's so high now, yeah. Nonviolent crimes, and now they're getting 24-hour-an-hour union jobs. Right. You know, nobody's bashing Trump in the United States except for these white, old liberals that want to tell us what to do. Right. And it's getting really disappointing. And I'll take your comments off there. Thank you so much. You guys are awesome. Love hey, yeah, I appreciate the thoughts. I appreciate the personal anecdote and uh, waiting to share it with us. And, yeah, it's so true. And I, I, I feel such solidarity with Anthony there in that sentiment of don't tell me who I am. Don't tell me what I'm supposed to think and how I'm supposed to identify. You know, the the problem with identity politics is not that your identity, because I, I think what happens on the right, the the error that is made by Republicans, some Republicans and some conservatives, is that in an effort to push back against the identity politics of the left, we try to undo the entire concept of identity itself, or we try to ignore identity and try to portray it as an irrelevant factor in life, which it obviously is, right? Like your identity is obviously of importance to you, your heritage, your background, your history, your values, your culture, the things that, that make you, you. Now, the problem with the way the left does it though 
is that they're not interested in what actually makes you you. They're interested in you conforming to what they say you ought to be based upon superficial characteristics. It's actually profoundly bigoted. It's profoundly racist, profoundly sexist, profoundly, you know, whatever ism you want to throw on it. Every, it, everything they say, this is something I was talking with Kirsten Johnson and Xavier Bigot uh, before, the, before we went on the air last hour. We were having a little conversation before the show. And I was telling them that I have this general rule that I apply to my analysis of the left. And it's a pretty decent general rule that pans out most of the time. Whatever they say, the opposite is true. Whatever the left says, the opposite is true. And this works both in terms of like their factual claims, generally the opposite is true, and also in terms of what they accuse their opponents of. When the left tells you that you're racist, they're projecting their own racism. When the left tells you that they're that you're sexist, they're projecting their own sexism. And that pans out. That's obvious in how they treat the minority group in question, how they treat black people, how they treat women, and how they treat them is with the expectation, indeed, the demand that you will think what they say you ought to think. You will behave the way they say you ought to behave. You will conform. You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. You will join the collective. You are not your own individual. You do not get to define your own identity because it's already been defined for you by the committee of the left. That's their approach. And they're they're arrogant about it. They have this sense of, of manifest destiny that they get to define who you are as an individual based upon the demographic category that you fall into. And if you deviate, if you have your own ideas, your own thoughts, your own sense of self, then you're the problem. You're a sinner. You're a deviant. It's amazing how much the left praises individuality or intersectionality, you could say. But then the minute that you try to assert individual rights, you're automatically Satan. What What's truly intersectional is what Anthony described. You know, a Catholic, multiracial, libertarian, right? Like, using the, the Catholic birth control method. Like, that's truly intersectional. The ways in which individuals have all these different aspects of their unique character, their unique identity, what makes them them, the secret sauce, the DNA code, right? Like, that's real intersectionality. And it manifests only in recognition of, and acknowledgement of the individual. You cannot classify it. This this game that is essential to the left, it's definitional. It's it's part of the the defining the foundational characteristic of the left as such to where you have to categorize people. They they reject individual individualism and individuals as a concept to the fault where they, they, they're incapable of processing the idea that somebody might deviate from the prescribed groupthink. This is why the left's reaction to hashtag walk away to all these people who've come out on social media and Twitter and Facebook saying, Hey, I, I'm a, I'm a Native American single mom. You know, we'll use uh, Kirsten's background as the temple here. I'm a Native American single mother, uh, who lives in, lives in a suburb of uh, Minnesota who's a Republican and a Libertarian, right? And you know, if, if Kirsten were to put her story out on Twitter with the hashtag walk away, the left's response is that's not real. That's fake. That's a Russian bot. Literally denying the truth of a person's existence. That's how malevolent they are. That's how malicious they are. That's how committed they are to denying your right to define yourself. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. So I'm going to start my analysis of the House hearings today involving FBI agent Peter Strzok with a comment that uh, is counterintuitive and that you might shy away from at first, but just stick with me because there, 
there, there's one, there's an addendum to this thought and that will eventually go in the direction that you expect. There's a part of me that feels sorry for Peter Strzok. Legitimately, there really is. And it's it's a very specific libertarian impulse. I don't like the idea of a citizen sitting in front of a group of people cloaked in power, having his character called into question, being berated, and being kicked around like a political football. Like just the the take the the personalities out of it, take the particular circumstances and the context out of it. Just that picture of somebody who does not have power being kicked around by a bunch of people who do in public is something that I instinctively coming from my libertarian impulse find distasteful. Okay. So I'll start there. That said, that said, when you reintroduce all of the context, when you reintroduce the specific personalities in question here, I very quickly find any sort of sympathy with Peter Strzok evaporating. Because this guy, this guy is not just some random citizen off the street who was dragged into, you know, a, a house hearing and berated and had it, having his character called into question. This is a person who himself, in his role at the FBI, was also cloaked in a certain amount of power and was put in a position of trust and responsibility to conduct impartial investigations that were highly consequential to everything at the federal level, like who was going to be the next president of the United States, potentially. And he chose to approach that from a clearly partisan, highly biased perspective and therefore deserves to be dragged through the coals to a large degree. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. com and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream us. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. Here's the breakdown from the Washington Post. Republicans fought bitterly Thursday with FBI agent Peter Strzok at a congressional hearing that frequently devolved into shouting matches about political bias between supporters of President Trump and defenders of the agency investigating him. The mutual contempt felt between Republicans on one side and Democrats and their star witness on the other was palpable from the very first question put to Strzok, whose conduct as the lead agent on FBI probes of Hillary Clinton and the Trump campaign has been sharply criticized by internal Justice Department investigators. The day-long hearing, which featured more or far more heated accusations than new information, was a naked display of the animus and agitation in Washington that surrounds the ongoing investigation into whether any Trump associates conspired with Russia to interfere with the 2016 election. And can we just pause to appreciate the fact that here we are, in July of 2018, nearly two full years later, and there's still zero tangible evidence to even suggest that a Trump associate conspired with Russia to interfere in the 2016 election. It's astounding that this is still a thing, that this is still a question that's being pursued. When the, the singular focus of Every media organization on the planet, <laughs> the entire left-wing apparatus, and many government resources, including those of the Department of Justice and the FBI, have been trained on trying to come up with something that they can make stick to Trump or his associates, specifically when it comes to, and you know, when you, when you talk to the left on this, They'll be like, what are you talking about? Look at all the indictments. You know, look at all the charges that have been filed. Yeah, look at them. Actually look at them. Which of the, you tell me, lefty, which of them have anything whatsoever to do with collusion between the Trump campaign or the Trump administration and the Russians to affect United States elections? The answer to that question, I'll give you the spoiler alert, is zero. Zero. So... Relevance, please. Like you, you can come up with indictments. You know, this is a point that we make all the time here on the program. Usually, when we're talking about somebody trying to tear down a statue or rename a lake or whatever the case may be, if you cast a 
the harsh spotlight on somebody for long enough, you're going to find something criminal, right? You're going to find something that you can conjure. With the number of laws that we have in this country, you can find something to charge somebody with, to indict somebody for, especially if they're in any sort of position of power or authority or influence, and you're dead set on finding something, you will do it. So it doesn't surprise me at all that you have indictments for people around Trump for things that have nothing whatsoever to do with collusion in Russia. But the idea that because there's an indictment here and an indictment there, and because this guy was involved with you know unrelated bank fraud, in some cases from years before he got involved with the Trump campaign, that that somehow justifies the continued investigation into something that for which there is zero evidence whatsoever is pretty absurd, and the left knows it's absurd. They know it's absurd. Continuing at the Washington Post, Republicans accused Strzok and the FBI of pursuing politically motivated probes aimed at harming President Trump. Democrats called the entire hearing part of the GOP attempt to protect the president by tainting the work of special counsel Robert S. Mueller III. Lawmakers talked over each other and the witnesses in sometimes starkly personal and intemperate terms. Representative Trey Gowdy, chairman of the Oversight Committee, started the first fracas when he asked Strzok how many individuals he interviewed in the first week of the Russia probe in the summer of 2016. I will not, based on direction of the FBI, answer that question because it goes to matters which are related to the ongoing investigations being undertaken by the special counsel's office, Strzok replied. At that point, Representative Bob Goodlot, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, interjected, threatening Strzok with a contempt citation if he did not answer. Mr. Strzok, you are under subpoena and are required to answer the question, Goodlot said. Minutes earlier, Goodlot had accused Strzok of turning justice on its head. As Republicans berated Strzok over his work on the probes, Democrats sought to de defend him through unsuccessful objections and parliamentary maneuvers, leading to arguments among lawmakers about Strzok while he sat listening at the witness table. Representative Steve Cohen described the FBI agent as an injured survivor. Wait until you hear this comment from this Democrat out of Tennessee, Steve Cohen, about Peter Strzok. This is what he said. If I could give you a purple heart, I would. You deserve one, Cohen said. It's astonishing to me that you would be put on trial as you have today. A purple heart wants to give the guy the medal that's awarded to military personnel wounded in combat because he was brought before a congressional hearing and had to answer some questions. That is absurd. But, of course, we would expect nothing less from our lefty friends. Struck, a deputy assistant director at the FBI who oversaw counterintelligence cases, was removed from the Trump probe by Mueller in July 2017. At that time, investigators for the Justice Department inspector general discovered text messages between him and then-FBI lawyer Lisa Page in which they repeatedly disparaged Trump and expressed a strong desire that he, was, uh, that he not win the election. Struck's work at the FBI became the subject of intense political debates in Congress after the Washington Post reported in December that he and Page, who had been involved in a romantic relationship, were under investigation by the Inspector General over their texts. Page left the FBI earlier this year, struck as the focus of an internal investigation that could lead to his firing, but he is still technically an employee of the Bureau. And then they get into you know some back and forth that took place between Strzok and Louis Gohmert uh, and other things that were said. And you know the bottom line here, the the thing that stands out to me is that the Democrats, the Democrats' response to all of this, uh, it's it's put struck himself articulated this during the hearing. He said the proposition that is going on and might occur anywhere in the FBI deeply corrodes what the FBI is in American society, the effectiveness of their mission, and it is a deeply destructive, Strzok said, prompting cheers from Democrats in the hearing room. So the Democratic narrative and the narrative from Peter Strzok in response to this scrutiny is, you guys, Republicans, Trump, the administration, conservatives, you guys are undermining the effectiveness and the trust in the system. You're undermining the FBI, and that's harmful to the country. You guys are hurting the country by calling to question the integrity of the special counsel and the integrity of this agency and the integrity of this investigation. Nonsense. Complete and utter nonsense. Because nobody... Let me tell you what Republicans didn't do. Let me tell you what Trey Gowdy didn't do, what Louis Gohmert didn't do. Neither of those guys and no Republican anywhere in Washington, D.C. sent those texts to Lisa Page. 
right? Peter Strzok did that. And when you're going to put yourself, you know, to to put forward the notion that the FBI is so important as an institution and that trust in the system is so essential, you know, I'll buy that. I will buy that premise. So, Peter Strzok, therefore, the question becomes, why would you engage in activity and correspondence and conduct that calls into question the integrity of that institution? Why would you engage in correspondence and conduct which calls into question your neutrality when it comes to how you proceed with such an important investigation? That's a decision that you made. Trey Gowdy didn't do that for you. Louis Gomer didn't do that for you. Donald Trump didn't do that for you. Sean Hannity didn't do that for you. You made that choice to act in a way that was unbecoming for somebody who was in a position of authority and power and entrusted to engage in such an important couple of investigations. This is why the level of scrutiny that people are put under to even be, join the FBI in the first place is so high and why the standards of personal conduct are so high. So you have to, that's on you. If you want to serve in this capacity, if you want to be entrusted with the responsibility to engage at this level, then you don't get to run around and have affairs behind your wife's back and send text messages to your paramour on no doubt government provided phones talking about how you don't like the president elect and are going to interfere with him taking office. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, So you may recall there was a case a while back where a truly reprehensible human being by the name of Michelle Carter effectively incited her boyfriend to suicide. And that, that of course, is, you know, as I say, reprehensible, beyond the pale. Gal probably deserves to burn in hell for doing that, right? But the the legal criminal question came into play as is she guilty of a crime and according to authorities in the jurisdiction where this took place the answer to that was yes she was convicted last year of involuntary manslaughter because she told her boyfriend to kill himself and her lawyers are now arguing that that conviction was inappropriate they're appealing it and their argument is she had a First Amendment right to tell her boyfriend to kill himself. And the opinion over at Reason.com is that those lawyers are correct. Are they? Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. Continuing at Reason. Michelle Carter has now appealed this decision on grounds that her conduct was permissible under the First Amendment. Carter's words encouraging Roy's suicide, however distasteful to this court, were protected speech, wrote her lawyers in a recently filed brief. A criminal law that penalizes a person who encourages another person to commit suicide cannot survive strict scrutiny. Carter wasn't present for the suicide of her boyfriend, Roy Conrad. But she communicated with him on the phone shortly before he attached a water pump to his car and poisoned himself with carbon monoxide. Carter had previously urged Conrad to go through with it, though her lawyers argue it was never definitively established that she egged him on at the very end when he was actually taking the steps to kill himself. She later told a friend that Conrad's suicide was her fault, though it's possible she just said that for attention. She is clearly a very disturbed person, as was Conrad. But is she a killer? Uh, as this author, writing at Reason, wrote in an op-ed for the New York Times a year ago, her conviction runs afoul of the First Amendment. Ms. Carter's conduct was morally reprehensible, but at least until the, the ruling of her conviction, it was clearly legal. While some states criminalize the act of convincing people to commit suicide, Massachusetts has no such law. Moreover, speech that is reckless, hateful, and ill-willed nevertheless enjoys First Amendment protection. While the Supreme Court has carved out narrowly tailored exceptions for literal threats of violence and incitement to lawless action, telling someone they should kill themselves is not the same as holding a gun to their head and pulling the trigger. 
nor is it akin to threatening to kill the president, which is strictly prohibited by law, and in any case, only considered a felony if done knowingly and willfully. Merely expressing the hope that the president dies isn't enough. For decades, efforts have been underway to criminalize every obnoxious or problematic social interaction between K-12 through kids in American schools. Hardly a week passes without a national news story about teenagers who are arrested on child pornography charges and face unfathomably long prison sentences because they had inappropriate pictures of classmates or even themselves on their phones. In Iowa in June of 2016, authorities tried to brand a 14-year-old girl as a sex offender for Snapchatting while wearing a sports bra and boy shorts. The following month, Minnesota police officers busted a 17-year-old for swapping consensual sex with his 16-year-old girlfriend. Such matters should be handled by parents and teachers, not the cops. The same is true for the various issues that plagued Ms. Carter and Mr. Roy. Now, when I read this piece earlier today, prepping for the show, this is one of those issues where I had to stop and think about it because I'm I'm of two minds. Because, you know, the, the freedom of speech does have limitations, right? You know, you can't incite violence you can't threaten people and so the question becomes is what this gal michelle carter did to her boyfriend encouraging him to commit suicide does this fall under that category of speech that is not protected because it's inherently harmful it causes harm of its very nature and i reflect upon a little while maybe i need to think about it more but where I'm where I'm landing on this at the moment is that this case made by the the author here at Reason is correct. That this should not rightfully be considered a criminal act. It's morally reprehensible. It's completely inexcusable in a moral sense. And like I say, you know, absent forgiveness from the Almighty, this gal should burn in hell for what she did. But to call it criminal and to and to treat it the uh, when we talk about the criminal justice system. And we've done this a number of times in the program. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, how do you affect justice in this situation? You know, what did she do that directly and specifically caused him to kill himself? And that's a question that you can't readily answer. Because here's the thing. Why didn't he, why didn't he shut her out of his life? Why did he stay on the phone? Why didn't he block her number? Why didn't he break up with her? Why was she even in his life? Does he have any responsibility whatsoever for having engaged in not just the action of taking his life, but in enabling and tolerating her influence? And if we're going to respect the individuals as such at all, the answer to that question has to be yes, he has responsibility for that. So there's your controversial statement on the way out the door. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.